This is What the FC. I'm Will Martin. And I'm Matt McCutcheon. MLS is weird, and we love a good story. Let's go. Welcome back to What the FC. You are listening to part two of episode two of our MLS 101 mini-series. So back over in part one, we started this episode off by talking about every single team in the Eastern Conference of MLS. On this episode, on this part of the episode, we will be diving into the entire Western Conference, so all 12 teams. Same format as what we did in part one. I'm going to give a quick 30-second basic overview of each team including where they're from, their stadium, when they entered the league, what kind of achievements they've had, what trophies they've won, and that kind of stuff. And then we're going to utilize the uh, entire ethos of this podcast by sharing our favorite story from each club. So you guys kind of get a good idea of what each club is really like. What are the stories surrounding them? So we had a really great time with our Eastern Conference preview. So if you haven't done uh, that episode yet, go back to that one first and then come back over to the Western Conference. Uh, Matt, excited for part two? Oh, definitely. For sure. All right. Let's get straight into it then, okay? We're going to jump straight in to the Seattle Sounders. Obviously, they are based out of Seattle, Washington. They play at the dual-purpose CenturyLink field uh, that they share with the Seattle Seahawks. It was built with both soccer and football in mind. I've actually seen Seattle play Portland there. Um, I was able to go there with my dad and watch that rivalry game. It's a great venue for soccer. They are great fans. It's so awesome. They came in in 2009 as an expansion team and have never missed the playoffs in their existence. Wow. which is an incredible achievement. They've never finished lower than fourth in the Western Conference. They have four U.S. Open Cup titles. They won the 2014 Supporters' Shield and recently triumphed in two MLS Cups in 2016 and 2019. Definitely a juggernaut in the league. Absolute mm-hmm. juggernaut. They're always in the playoffs, always finishing high in the Western Conference, always have great support, just a great club all around. What we're going to talk about here with Seattle, though, uh, is their original coach, Siggy Schmidt. So uh, Siggy is one of the most successful American coaches of all time and an even better person. He recently passed away um, in December of 2018. So with this story, we're just kind of honoring the the life and career of Siggy, who's just an absolute legend in the American soccer scene. Um, He was born in West Germany, uh, moved to the States as a child, so he's German-American, and played college soccer at UCLA from 72 to 75, and went on to coach uh, UCLA from 1980 to 1999, leading them to, look at this record, 322 wins. 63 losses and 33 draws over his two decades in charge of UCLA. They made 16 consecutive NCAA tournaments, uh, and they won a national championship in 85, 90, and 97. He was also a youth national team coach during this time. So started off with a bang uh, with his coaching career. Yeah, just Um, a little bit. (laughs) Yep, and then coached uh, LA Galaxy in the early days of the league, uh, won the Shield Cup double in 2002. Uh, And then he coached at Columbus Crew in the mid to late 2000s, won the Shield Cup double with them in 2008, before Seattle hired him as their very first coach. He led them for seven years from 09 to 16. Uh, And this is probably for fans that are my age. This is what I remember Siggy Smith as. I remember him as the Seattle Sounders coach where he was really successful. Obviously, never missed the playoffs with them. Seven consecutive playoff appearances. He won four U.S. Open Cups uh, and one Supporter Shield 2014. His biggest regret was that he never was able to deliver that MLS Cup to uh, to Seattle. But luckily, during his lifetime in 2016, he got to see Brian Schmetzer, his former assistant, lead them to that MLS Cup triumph, which was a pretty cool moment for him to be in the stadium for, to see that finally get delivered to the fans he really cared about. He mutually parted ways with the Sounders in 2016, had a brief second stint as LA Galaxy coach, left there, uh, and then passed away Christmas Day 2018, age 65, from a heart-related condition. But as soon as soon as he passed away, just like the outpouring of positive messages and people telling stories and remembering Siggy was just really, really cool. He was one of those coaches that was like always in your corner. 
You know, like if you mm-hmm. knew that even if you had a crap game or something went wrong or something, Siggy was going to walk into that press conference and stick up for you. He was always wow. in his players' corners. Um, he was widely regarded also just for his ability to identify and develop talent, probably coming from his days, his two decades as a college coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and after after his passing, MLS actually named the Coach of the Year Award after Siggy Smith. Uh, so it's now the Siggy Smith MLS Coach of the Year, an award that he won twice. So not trying to start you guys on too heavy of a note here, but uh, just kind of remembering the, the life and success of Siggy Schmid. Uh, he's a major, major part of, of Seattle's history and always will be. Uh, and like we said there, he made them into an absolute juggernaut. So let's go over to their major rival and, and possibly the biggest rivalry in Major League Soccer. And that's the rivalry between Seattle and Portland in Cascadia. Um, so the Portland Timbers were uh, a 2011 MLS expansion team. So they came in two years after Seattle. Um, they play at uh, Providence Park. Um, they've made two MLS Cup finals. Uh, they won one in 2015 before the Sounders did. So you know they lorded that one over them. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then they lost one in 2018 to Atlanta, uh, but beat Sounder, the Sounders in the semis on the way to that MLS Cup final. Fair enough. But Sounders have won two MLS Cups. So I'm sure those fan groups are always going back and forth. They also won the one off MLS's back tournament this summer. Um, but they play at Providence Park, which is a really, really got a really cool history, really historical venue. Uh, that Matt's going to talk a little bit about. Yeah, uh, as Will was saying, they're a very successful club um, for the relatively short history as an organization. However, their ground of Providence Park had far surpasses any idea of soccer being played there. Yeah. Um, it is in the heart of downtown Portland and is one of the most iconic venues in all of MLS. Sport events uh, have been played there for about 127 years since 1893 when it originally was just uh, Multnomah Field with a just a little grandstand. So probably something that you would see like in the English game or on Netflix or, yeah. or whatever. Just like a, just a little stand for, for people who are yeah. casually wanting to watch their friends play or, or, or something yeah. like that. It's crazy to think that there's been a field on this plot of land since 1893 for over a century and that people have been playing on that. That's just really crazy. I mean, it's kind of a special thing to be able to go to a stadium and, and know that there's that much history. We don't get that a lot in the u.s right like no, you see that a lot in england or stuff right because they just have so much history behind these clubs but because mls is so young i think this is pretty unique yeah i mean it the the ground before it was um turned into multnomah field was a large chinese vegetable garden supplying produce to much of portland according to their website that is and I don't know about you, but that that might be the most Portland thing I've ever heard. But <laughs> that is like, so that is so Portland. Like to <laughs> to have that on their website as well. Like yeah. to like not only has this field been here for 127 years, before that it yeah. was a Chinese vegetable. Garden. Oh yeah, sustainable <laughs> and for the community and everything. Um, but the stadium was built for five hundred thousand dollars in 1926, and it's hosted a wide variety of events and games over its history. Uh, including Pele's final professional game in 1977 and previous uh, Timbers iteration since 1975. Yeah, so the Timbers have played there since 1975, like in previous leagues and stuff. Pretty cool to... Pretty cool to go to a stadium and be like, "Hey, this is where Pele played his last game." Like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> in America, it's it's I think something people don't think about all the time. Exactly. Uh, it was renovated in 2011 for their expansion year for 40 million dollars, and again in 2019 to add a third stand and up their capacity to 25,218 people. Uh, incredibly, the Timbers continue to make history in this hollowed stadium for good reason. There's so much just character surrounding oh, yeah. it. And I've never been there, but I definitely that's one of my first places that I want to go to in terms of West Coast. Oh, yeah. I've been to CenturyLink Field now. I want, I want when we were up there in the Northwest, I wanted to go to Providence Park so bad. But there wasn't a game when I was there and it would have been a long drive. And I just but I wanted to go so bad because it's so cool. But it. It's hard to get into these games. It's mm-hmm. not it's not very easy to get into a Portland game. No. Yeah, because similarly it was originally made to cultivate um, you know, Chinese herbs or vegetables or whatever. They've been able to cultivate an incredible fan culture uh, at that ground, uh, at that soil. Wow, I can't I can't believe you've just yeah, done that metaphor. I did that. I did that. <laughs> it might be a little bit of a stretch, but who cares? Um anyways, they they have an incredible fan culture. They sell out their games. They've sold out 
every game for that matter since moving to MLS in 2001. Every single game. That's like 30 games a year. It's They're astonishing. S- yeah. Selling out every single game. Especially given the fact that Portland is raining all the yeah. time and it and can be so depressing. Yeah. Um, but one of my favorite parts about the fan culture there, especially in the stadium that's very unique, is that they really take the Portland Timbers uh, identity to a different level. They have a huge log, a huge timber in their uh, standing section, near their standing section. Yeah, yeah. It's like right behind one of the goals, like in front of their supporter section. In, right. Yeah, in front of their main supporter section. And whenever uh, Portland Timbers score... They have oh gosh what's his, what's his name um Tim, oh, Timber Joey yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. Timber Joey yeah. yeah Timber Joey Timber Joey pulls out a chainsaw a full chainsaw like we're at an actual chainsaw yes a chainsaw at a sport game uh, <laughs> w- with a blade on it and cuts a uh, just a timber off of it and yeah. and what I think is even more cool. Uh, and very much so with the Portland thought of, you yeah. know, sustainability and, you know, recycling. <laughs> uh, they recycle that log and give it to the goal scorer and he'll pick it up at the end of their game. Yeah, and they come and like celebrate with the supporter section and everything with their slice of a freaking log. Yeah. Where <laughs> else do you get anything like that yeah. in, in the league? It's so unique. And I've never heard of anything like that worldwide yeah. for that matter. Yeah. I um, mean, when, when, when you talked about in one of our previous episodes about like, why can't like American soccer? culture just be american like why Mm -hmm. do we have to follow other teams like portland timbers are what you're talking about like that that is american right that that is unique that that is us that is portland it's so cool what they've been able to do with their supporters culture there um they're killing it they are absolutely killing it so let's go to the third team in cascadia and, and kind of the the forgotten third team in cascadia at times because the rivalry is technically Cascadia Cup, uh, and the and Seattle, Portland, and Vancouver Whitecaps play all these games against each other in the regular season, and whoever gets the most points out of those games gets the Cascadia Cup. So that's technically kind of the three-way rivalry, but in reality, everyone just kind of cares about the Portland-Seattle rivalry, and Vancouver is just kind of, kind of left off to the side. So obviously they're in Canada, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, at dual purpose at a dual purpose stadium that has almost a fifty five thousand capacity. Um, they reduced that to about twenty two thousand with banners over the upper bowl uh, mm-hmm. for most of their games. They were also an expansion team in twenty eleven. They came in the league at the same time as the Portland Timbers. As for their achievements, uh, they've won one Canadian championship in their nine years, uh, which is the Canadian equivalent of the U.S. Open Cup again. Their best season, they finished second in the Western Conference in 2015 and third in 2017. They're basically, Matt, one of those teams that just every year, like they're either just out of playoffs mm-hmm. or barely in playoffs. They're just kind of are one of those teams that are constantly riding the line, like a like a team that finishes 13th every single year in Crystal uh, Palace. And yeah, and it's like, oh, and then all of a sudden one year they're in a relegation scrap, and then one year they're in the top 10, and then they're yeah. back to like being middling. That's been Vancouver's history so far um, in MLS, uh, but they have had a really cool, cool history because they've actually been around for a really long time. Yeah, and so although they haven't had much success uh, in MLS, they've they produced a couple of good players. They, I mean, Alfonso Davies being the highlight right. star, like the golden boy of MLS in terms yeah. of uh, producing a academy player who's been shipped off to Europe and starting for Bayern Munich and he won the Champions League. Champions League and yeah. I, mean, I should I should have given Vancouver credit for developing him because yeah. that was a big deal. They gave him his debut at like fifteen or 16. fifteen or sixteen. Yeah. yeah, I mean he played a big role for them for a while. Yeah, so he was huge. But I think the most significant thing about Vancouver Whitecaps is the fact that they're a Phoenix club, a a uh, a club that uses the identity of uh, a former club um, that originates back from like the 1970s right when Vancouver Whitecaps w- was the original team name yeah in the old NASL days in yes. the 70s in the Pele days uh, yeah the heyday of the NASL and then obviously the NASL collapsed in 1984 yeah and so they collapsed in 1984 and then they were reinvented and rebranded into the Vancouver 86ers um, not the 76ers, uh, <laughs> that would be significant in America. Right. Um, but the Vancouver 86ers, because 
the year uh, Vancouver was incorporated uh, as a city was in 1886. The first year of the club's founding was in 1986. Obviously, they're they're founding in this new league post yeah, yeah, in the in the Canadian yeah. Soccer League. So just a different league. They they bounce around multiple right. times. Um, but 86 is also significant because it was the first year that Canada ever qualified for the FIFA World Cup, which is which is huge considering yeah. the um, player pool and also the fact that they're in the frozen tundra of the nor- of North <laughs> yeah. America. So th- that's pretty impressive. They're back on the rise now, hopefully, with Alfonso Davies and some other Jonathan David. Yeah, Jonathan kinda, he's at he's at uh, Lille with mm-hmm. uh, with Timothy Weah now uh, and a young, young American international. So. Canada maybe thought they were on the way up at this point, but then they had some really low years in the 2000s. But hopefully they're kind of back and going to be a force in CONCACAF again. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, Better competition is only good news, uh, especially for America. It keeps us accountable for having to, you know, not, um, you know, stagnate with our youth development and and, and such. But another way that they incorporated 86 was that there were 86 members who originally invested to help fund the start of the team. So I think it's very cool, like this convoluted way to yeah. utilize 86. I don't know if it was intentional whatsoever or just the stars aligning for right. whatever reason in Canada and Vancouver. Yeah. Um, but from 1988 to 99, uh, 91, excuse me, the 86ers established themselves as a powerhouse. They they won four straight league championship titles, um, the Canadian Soccer League, that is. Um, and they set an, a North American professional sports ground record by playing 46 consecutive matches without defeat. Um, and, and more detail is 37 wins and nine draws, which is incredible. Uh, yeah. Arsenal are known as one of the best teams ever for the Invincibles year in like 2003, maybe yeah, or so. something early, like early 2000s, 2000s yeah, yeah, where they didn't lose a single match. Um, similar to this, uh, they were inducted to the British Columbia Sports Hall of Fame and and what have you. But yeah, I mean, pretty cool story. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think the brand's kind of cool. I mean, for obvious reasons, right? They're not the 86ers anymore because it was a different Correct. time. And then they obviously have come back as the Vancouver White Pat, the Vancouver Whitecaps, excuse me, in, mm-hmm. uh, in MLS. But yeah, yeah. And, and cool story. And so in short summary, they bounced around in several different leagues, had some cool identity of the Whitecaps originally, the 86ers, and then now they're back in the Whitecaps, yeah. as Will said, being inducted in 2011. Quick motif. I, I can relate with Vancouver very well as a Charlotte Hornets fan originally being Charlotte Hornets in the early 90s having a successful team instability franchising um, changes and becoming the Bobcats not very successful right rebranded as the Hornets again um, similar to the Whitecaps and so it's a cool it's a cool story that I can relate with and always being on the fringe of successful but (laughs) always terrible yeah yeah just stuck in mediocrity at times and then just dipping down into really terribleness sometimes Mm -hmm. yeah it it is cool to kind of look back at their history and see the the different rebrands I think this 86ers brand was uh, was very late 80s and 90s, right? It, it was pretty. It's pretty cool to look back on. All right, let's go over to California. Okay, we're gonna start off with the San Jose Earthquakes. They are based in San Jose, California, at Earthquakes Stadium. Uh, it has an 18,000 capacity. Uh, they privately constructed that and privately funded it. So there was no public money from the city on that one. I know that's always a big sticking point when we're talking about building stadiums and stuff. And uh, we'll hear later about why that's such a big deal as well. Um, they were an original member of the uh, first 10 teams in MLS. They were originally the San Jose Clash. So interesting. I don't know. I don't know. And do you know any significance of, of Clash? I have no idea. I, I think a lot of those names in early MLS were just, they were like, oh, this is a cool. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the San Jose Earthquakes name is a lot more fun, I think. Um, they took part in the first game in league history. They beat DC United 1-0 at the Rose Bowl uh, in the very first game. That's pretty cool. Uh, as for achievements, they've won two MLS Cup titles uh, in 2001 and 2003, two Supporter Shields in 2005 and 2012. Uh, 2012 was kind of the most recent time that they were really a top team and really elite. But they've also finished dead last a league record four times. So that leads us Yikes. straight into the story for San Jose. So you're telling um, me they're the equivalent of Orlando City, but 
on the West Coast? They might be. They, this this might be your Western Conference hate team here. Oh, yeah. They might be. I can hop on board. Credit to San Jose, right? Like, they had some really awesome years. Like, from 2010 to 2013, they had the Bash Brothers up top and Chris Wondolowski. And that's a story for another time. And they were crazy successful and obviously won the Shield. So, they've definitely had their successful times. But when they haven't been successful, they've not just been mediocre. They've been really bad. So, traditionally... The last place team in a league kind of gets the wooden spoon. That's a thing across leagues. It's like, oh, you you got the wooden spoon. You finished dead last. But in MLS, there's an actual physical trophy for this wooden spoon. Oh, my Lord. Before the 2016 MLS season, the Independent Supporters Council, which is basically just a coalition of all the supporters groups in, in MLS so that they can kind of make sure that things are done right. And it's like a union, basically. But they uh, decided to create one as a complement to the Supporters Shield, uh, which the Independent Supporter Council also <laughs> manages. So it's passed on at every annual uh, ISC conference, uh, and the supporters of that team have to hold on to the Wooden Spoon Trophy for an entire year. Um, but what I find really funny about this is supporter groups keep renaming it after completely inept and helpless and bad owners. So uh, the Chicago Fire uh, got the award for the first time, the actual physical award in 2016, and uh, they they actually won it back-to-back in the first two years. Uh, But they they christened it the Andrew Hauptman Memorial Wooden Spoon after uh, after their inaugural year um, of winning it, which I think is hilarious. They literally just had a dig at their owner by naming this last-place trophy after him. But then it got renamed uh, beginning with the 2017 season. Even though Columbus did not win it, they renamed it the Anthony Precourt Memorial Wooden Spoon. Uh, If you listen to part one, you'll know exactly why they renamed it the Anthony Precourt Memorial Wooden Spoon. Yeah, fair enough. Um, So San Jose have won it the most times, 1997, 2000, 2008, and 2018. Obviously, they only had the actual trophy once because it's been around since 2016. Uh, FC Cincinnati currently have it after their uh, dismal expansion year. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll see who has it after this kind of weird 2020 season yeah but, i feel um, like there'll be an asterisk next to it because kinda, it, yeah. it, it's i mean it's kind one. of a banter trophy anyways yeah. so but i just i just find this really really funny uh sorry san jose for having to throw this in underneath you guys but uh i just i just find the wooden spoon hilarious so let's go over to more california teams uh let's talk about the los angeles galaxy uh so the los angeles galaxy are um in, actually in Carson, California, which is a suburb of LA. That's where their uh, team headquarters are and their stadium and all that kind of stuff. The stadium is Dignity Health Sports Park. It's got 27,000 seats. It's actually where the Chargers temporarily played That's while right. they were constructing okay. their stadium. So they kind of shared that with the Chargers for a little bit. They were also one of the original 10 MLS teams. The name is derived from the stars of Hollywood, right? Like the Gal- LA Galaxy. Uh, okay, yeah. Kind of the... Um, but it's definitely the most iconic worldwide brand MLS has that might be changing and shifting a little bit in recent years. But historically, people say MLS, they automatically think LA Galaxy. Um, and for good reason, they've won a record five MLS Cups. They've appeared in nine MLS Cups. Wow. So they've won five of the nine they've been in. They've got four supporters shield. They've won the Western Conference eight times, two US Open, Open Cup titles. Crazy, crazy, crazy history. They did, though, win the Wooden Spoon in 2017. Really? Yeah, they did win the Wooden Spoon in 20. They were really bad in 2017. So a little bit of reversal of fortunes lately. You're trying to claw their way back up. But they're one of the most iconic worldwide brands MLS has for for very good reason mm-hmm. and for some of the players they've had. Yeah, and some of those players include, uh, um, I mean, there's some English dude who, who played midfield named... David, yeah, oh yeah, David Beckham. Oh yeah, they um, just had that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of y'all might heard of him, maybe. He, yeah, um, he did okay. Yeah, he, he he's pretty good, but uh, he is probably their first key signing that really changed the the scope of how you get designated players in the MLS. He changed the whole landscape of the designated player. Um, he ushered in. Lots more money being spent on these players' contracts yeah. and putting a new tier of player to come into the MLS. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, no, I mean, for sure. His signing, he came in in 2007. It just completely changed the league. Right? We, we just went into this era where there was so much more uh, media attention. I mean, the, the 
the media circus around the LA Galaxy in Beckham's first year in the league was insane. So it just automatically raised the profile of the league. And, you know, other stars are like, if it's good enough for David Beckham, it's good enough for me. And it, it, it kind of entered that period where people kind of stereotyped MLS as a retirement league. And I think MLS has been doing a good job of trying to shed that label recently. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not just David Beckham. LA Galaxy's brought in other players as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, they're the land of the A-list celebrities, and so they were bringing all these, you know, generally older A-list celebrity uh, right. within the soccer world. You have Zlatan Ibrahimovic. He came in as a 34, 35. Something like that. Something like that. To be but fair, he went back over to AC Milan. He's been killing it at killing AC it. Milan, yeah. Um, but, I mean, Serie A isn't necessarily a young person's league it's as true. well. You, you have strikers that are like Di Natale who are playing at 40 years old or something. But yeah. but anyways, they have Robbie Keane, the Irish striker, uh, played at, made his name at Spurs. Um, and yeah. Chicharito, the striker, Mexican striker, he hasn't done as well. Um, but he is just a huge name. Huge name. El um, Matador as well. Yes. Luis El Matador Hernandez, which was kind of the the previous chicharito if you're from that older generation mm-hmm. yeah that fox in the box but yeah. then they signed the de santos brothers the midfielders uh, from uh mexico um yep. they also signed uh, jorge campos steven gerrard ashley cole landon donovan the u.s men's national team uh, yeah. legend and christian pavon who's on loan i think yeah uh, he's on loan with them right now yeah but he's absolutely killing it yeah, a very is. young argentine yeah. uh, forward who i think is if mls can land more players like him there they can you know shoot for the stars yeah. in terms of what prospects they can create yeah exactly i mean the question now is la galaxy like i mentioned before they they won the wooden spoon in 2017 they had this really successful philosophy forever in just bringing in these massive players and they were always able to to see success with that but now the league is changing a little bit on them and i'm not sure if they've really kept up with that change a lot of uh, teams are going to find these young south american players that they can then sell on and it it's becoming much more of a developmental league and la galaxy have been suffering a little bit so we're going to see whether they can adapt to a changing league and still maintain that star power status mm-hmm. while while keeping up with the growing and changing dynamic of the league yeah so we'll exactly. see we'll see what they we'll see what they've got so let's go over to their big rival uh lafc so Los Angeles Football Club were a uh, brand new uh, expansion team in 2018. They have a soccer-specific stadium that opened in 2018. Um, it's got a 22,000-person capacity. They fill that thing up all the time. It's really, really awesome. They took the league by storm with the best regular season by an expansion team ever. Uh, they had 57 points in their 2018 year, which beat out Atlanta's expansion year by two points. Atlanta had 55 in their wow. expansion year. Um, and they won the Supporters' Shield in their second year in 2019. Carlos Vela was MVP. He scored like 34 goals. Yeah, mental. Uh, just absolutely mental. Bob Bradley's their coach, former U.S. men's national team coach, um, had some forays in Europe and stuff, uh, had a ill-fated stint at Swansea. That I mean, wasn't what manager hasn't? Literally, he, he got hired and got fired after 10 games as Swansea manager. I, crazy. And that's a story for another time. But the the big thing with LAFC here uh, are their... Um, is their brand because they haven't been around for that long, right? So there's not a ton of stories outside of just the fact that they've been so insanely good, but they've also been insanely good off the field. They killed it with their brand launch and their colors and all that kind of stuff. Uh, they've definitely become the model as teams look to launch their brand. I'm sure Charlotte FC studied them as they look to launch their brand. brand. Same with Elliot or same with Austin FC, excuse me. So really, I think what they were thinking with their brand was, the LA Galaxy are kind of in Carson, they, they're in this suburb. Mm-hmm. So th- whether this is fair or not about their supporters culture, the perception of them is very much that their base is more suburban, it's more white, it's more rich, mm-hmm. right? And then LAFC came in and they're basing themselves in downtown, in the city center. And they're looking to have their brand resonate with that diversity that Los Angeles um, that Los Angeles offers. They focus heavily on Spanish language broadcast deals, Spanish language outreach, Spanish language on their um, social media, Spanish with the players they're signing. Carlos Vela, they didn't just sign him just because he's a good player. 
they also signed him because he's a good Mexican national team player. And that, that makes a big difference as well. And the black and gold color scheme, it couldn't be more opposite than the all white jerseys of the LA galaxy, which is definitely very intentional. I, I think if you actually invert colors of Navy it's gold. So that's why you have like yeah. the blue and gold and then black and white. So it yeah. is the literal color inversion of LA galaxy. Yeah, I mean, so there's definitely some intentionality there and, and it definitely sends a message about like who they're marketing. It's darker. It's, mm-hmm. it's more grunge. It's, you know what I mean? And plus it's just so cool. It is. <laughs> it, it's, yeah. I, it's I think beautiful. it's gotta be one of uh, one of the top brands in MLS. Just those, that black and gold, the logo, the jerseys are so awesome. It's just a very easy brand. Um, they did some cool stuff. Like they had that really fam- viral um, unvo- unveiling video when they announced Bob Bradley as their coach, where they had these like big flat bill caps that they were giving out. And so when they announced him, they like released this video where he had his head down and then like slowly panned up with like in the bill of the hat revealed Bob Bradley. Oh, uh, cool. And it was pretty cool. And so like those hats became like really iconic. But the also another interesting fact about this LA rivalry is the name that's caught on for it. Oh yeah, this so, is this is on, up yeah. there for the best names of a rivalry, com- competing with the Columbus Crew and the Cincinnati, uh, Cincinnati FC. Yeah, hell is um, real. Hell is real rivalry. Hell is real. This is these, these are right up there with each other. We'd love to hear which one you guys think is is actually better. Or I mean, maybe you think one of these is crap, and we're completely uh, we're completely wrong here. But we think this one's cool. Go on. What yeah, is it? Yeah, yeah. So the rivalry is called El Trafico, which <laughs> I, I think is <laughs> the funniest, but actually like pretty marketable. Like it's yeah. pretty like it, it, it identifies with LA because their traffic is absolutely just incomprehensible of how <laughs> like how bad it is yeah and you know they're on they're in different parts of town so probably getting from carson to where the lafc stadium it probably takes a hot minute especially during rush hour traffic so i love it it's lighthearted. it's yeah. not like too much animosity in it but it it's was something organic. that they can all identify with and it sounds perfect yeah and it was organic as well yeah. like it just came out of nowhere the supporters kind of someone called it and it just stuck right it's not very pr corporate kind of heavy right i mean some lafc official came out like oh no like it should be like la classico or whatever and it's like no it's el trafico this is this is really awesome don't ruin a good american thing um all right moving on uh let's go over to the rocky mountain region okay we're gonna kick it off with real salt lake my favorite team. Um, I've supported them for a while. You guys would have heard um, all about that in episode zero. Uh, if you haven't heard kind of my origin story with my fandom of Real Salt Lake, go check out episode zero. Um, it, it's kind of cool how, how our fandoms originated. Mm-hmm. Matt has a cool story with Arsenal. I've got a cool story with Real Salt Lake. We think everyone has a really cool story. So go check that out for that conversation. Um, RSL joined as an expansion team in 2005. They're actually based in Sandy, Utah, a a suburb just 15 to 30 minutes away from Salt Lake City at Rio Tinto Stadium, Uh, Soccer Pacific Stadium, 20,000 capacity. They've got the Wasatch Mountains as the backdrop to the stadium. Just look up images of them in Google Images. It's pretty cool to be there. Um, As for achievements, they've seen some good success. They were MLS Cup champions in 2009. They were runners-up for Supporter Shield in 2010. They won the U.S. Open Cup in 2013. Um, and they were the third the third team to make the um, CONCACAF Champions League final. Uh, they lost in heartbreaking fashion to Monterey 3-2 on aggregate at home. Another um, MLS team losing to yeah. a Mexican so team. So they were actually the very first MLS team to reach CONCACAF Champions League final um, and nearly won it. And then you had Montreal in 2015, who got crushed by Club America. Mm-hmm. And then Toronto FC narrowly lost in 2018. So it's been two decades now, and still an MLS team has not won uh CONCACAF Champions League. So if you want to learn more about that, go check out the episode where we talk about special competitions and we're going to get all into the uh, Champions League fever. Um, Real Salt Lake has a really interesting story. Traditionally, their rival is uh, the Colorado Rapids because the Rocky Mountains and they've got a big rivalry with that, the Rocky Mountain Cup. And uh, we're going to talk about them in a second. But they had this really cool and still have this really cool rivalry with Sporting Kansas City that kind of developed organically. Most of the time, rivalries are born out of just decades of events, uh, a slow burn towards a passionate hatred from both sides, right? Like just stuff piles up over Mm -hmm. year over year over year. But this rivalry, though, definitely has an exact birth date, March 8th, 2011. So on March 8th, 2011, 
Real Salt Lake was playing a preseason match in Arizona against Sporting Kansas City. There, the match became really physical, really feisty. I mean, you're talking like heat, preseason, Arizona, heavy legs. Everyone's trying to prove themselves to get a spot for the season. And RSL went up 2-0. We're knocking the ball around a bit. And then Sporting Kansas City pulled it back to 2-2. There's no video, only oral reports because it was a closed doors scrimmage. But then the flashpoint happened. Roger Espinoza, Sporting Kansas City midfielder, came in with uh, what people say was a really bad studs-up challenge on RSL's number 10 and star player, Javier Morales. So obviously... It kicked off from there. And the ensuing chaos, the referee red carded the wrong player. Both benches completely cleared just into a brawl at like midfield. People shoving everyone. uh, In a friendly? And not even a friendly, a preseason match, right? Like they probably didn't even have like jerseys on. They probably just had their training tops on and stuff. And just absolutely, there there was accusations that someone kicked Javier Morales in the head. I think those were proven false but these were the kinds of things that were getting said about it Jeez. um so then so the game had to be called off they, they di- weren't able to continue the rest of the game and over the next few years every rsl skc game resulted in just basically borderline dirty games because both teams hated each other because of that preseason game uh it was uh Benny Failhaber for Sporting Kansas City and Kyle Beckerman for Real Salt Lake are um not exactly known for being uh, how do I say this, quiet uh, individuals. They're, they're not exactly meek. They, they're definitely going to tell you what they think. And so they definitely fueled it in press conferences by talking about how dirty the other team was and how much they disliked them and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it made for some fun games. And it, it built up to MLS Cup in 2013 when they played each other in like sub-zero temperatures. Uh, it was like 20 degrees in Sporting Kansas City. And uh, Sporting Kansas City ended up winning uh, in... Um, in penalties over oh, wow. RSL. Uh, it was like a 10-round penalty shootout. Like, it got 10 rounds deep. It was crazy. Um, Did the goalkeeper kick it second, like uh, DC United? No, I don't think so. No. I don't remember if Nick Romando took a penalty <laughs> or not. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, so the the rivalry has cooled off in recent years uh, a lot because Benny Failhaber and a lot of those uh, members of both teams have moved on to different teams mm-hmm. and or retired. So a lot of people that fueled it... Uh, have left, but the rivalry is definitely still there, right? Like RSL's main rival is still Colorado, but when they play Sporting Kansas City and when Sporting Kansas City plays RSL, there's definitely a different edge to it than yeah. a normal and less game. And I just think, I mean, it's just a good, it's just a kind of cool, weird, yeah. very MLS story. Do you think it's the rivalry, like it still lives on mainly among the supporters that were, you know, fans then? Yeah, and, I think and so. so. Like that, that, um, atmosphere is just there's a lot more animosity when when it's going and the the players can definitely probably feel that on the field is that is that more that dynamic I think so I think a lot of the fans have been around since that time and so they've learned to hate Sporting Kansas City and Sporting Kansas City fans have learned to hate Real Salt Lake fans because mm-hmm. they always argue over like who was in the wrong and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff and that's how the best rivalries you know I mean? are formed yeah. formed though because. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be something that everyone knows. Like it's the mystery around it that will keep yeah. it. I mean, going. What's, what's great about it is there's no video of it. So yeah, it's just like exactly. a, he said, he said, he said, he said, he said, like you don't know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's, it's pretty cool. So, um, let's kick it over to real salt lakes. Um, uh, true rival, the Colorado Rapids. Um, they are based out of Denver. Their stadiums in a suburb called commerce city. Soccer Pacific Stadium had opened in 2007, 18,000 capacity, um, 5,200 feet of elevation, the highest MLS. So they definitely have a big home field advantage just based on that. They're one of the original 10 teams in MLS. Um, They do have one MLS Cup title in 2010. They also appeared in one other MLS Cup. They've just mostly been like pretty up and down. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, I don't really know much about Colorado Rapids, but I do know one thing. What is that? Their owner is Stan Kroenke. And for y'all that don't know, Stan Kroenke is an American businessman, made his billions in real estate. He owns several, I think it was like 5 million acres of land for whatever reason. Um, (laughs) And he is also the owner of Arsenal FC, as well as the owner of the LA Rams, the um, Denver Nuggets, the Denver Avalanche. Um, And 
he is the worst thing to happen that, to sports. He was he was quoted in in 2018. Forbes listed him as one of the most uncharitable billionaires in the world. He only donated one million dollars <laughs> to Red Cross uh, of America. Yeah, and that was it. For, that that was his only donation. To you have like Bill Gates who's yeah. donating billion or hundreds of millions uh, yeah. every year, and this man. Won't, won't even you know give a penny you know uh he he's just the worst so with with arsenal he's just leveraged all of our history when he bought us in i think it was like 2007, 2007 yeah, yeah 2007 to be fair he helped us gain financial stability but that stability is so that he can make money so that he can leverage it along with all his other teams right. that aren't named the rams so that he can have some <laughs> like secure backing so that he can get approval to build the or to move the LA Rams from St. Louis back to California. Yep. And similar to how um oh what, what was his name the uh owner of Columbus Oh, Anthony Precourt. Yeah. So he's like Anthony Precourt in the sense of having talks under the table with LA officials about um, moving the team from St. Louis to LA without the fans knowing, without the town knowing nothing yeah. and he just was like all right well you know i i tried to deal with you and yeah. he had a lot of things um bids overturned to get them from st louis to yeah. la but finally did this man is so stingy he just like today as of today when we're recording he just yeah. killed gunner saurus <laughs> the mascot of arsenal it is just this uh, like this ridiculous green dinosaur <laughs> okay, that wears okay. an arsenal kit he goes to all the hospitals yeah um to visit like kids who are sick to yeah. you know give them like a fun experience he's like our like charity identity yeah. and this man was like Oh man, I'm not making enough money out of Arsenal. I'm gonna, I'm just going to furlough 55 staff, take you know Can't players' wages, to keep the mascot around, and and also kill Gunner Source. Like, what more <laughs> can this man take away? He has no regard for fan culture, any history of these organizations that he's taken over. But you know, it, it, it means nothing to him because he yeah. doesn't have a soul or emotions. <laughs> you know, so that colorado rapids so, to, so I, i'm sorry so to summarize so to summarize uh stan Kroenke, uh according to matthew mccutcheon is one the worst thing to happen to sports amen uh and two doesn't have a soul correct uh and three uh hates charity yeah that's pretty accurate yeah <laughs> so uh, i'm happy Col with that colorado rapids that. fans uh we're sorry about your owner apparently uh Matt's had some some pretty tough experiences that uh, he maybe needs to talk through with somebody. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so like with Arsenal, we we've become almost obsolete financially because of his lack of like consistent investment, and so yeah. not updating the squad, not investing into the squad, has just caused us to slowly drop. And our our joke was we always finish fourth place. The, the things I would do so that we could finish fourth place now because we have not made that Champions League money. And then he's like, oh, well, you're not making me any more money. So I'm just going to invest even less in you. And yeah. so, I mean, hopefully things are on the up for, for, for Arsenal and as well as Colorado Rapids, although I don't know very much of how they're doing currently. Um, but yeah, we can. Uh, it, it is it is a bit of the same story. Uh, there's not a lot of investment in the team. Um, just kind of. Status quo, they, they don't really spend. They're not definitely not at the top of the spending charts in salary or transfer outlay in MLS. Uh, and that's been a big part of their problem throughout their history, for sure. All right, let's go over and, and take a trip to Texas, off to the Houston Dynamo. Uh, based out of Houston, Texas, at BBVA Stadium since 2012. Um, it's a soccer-specific soccer stadium that they built there. It's 22,000 capacity, natural grass. Um they were founded in 2006 and definitely a bit of a uh, a weird origin story for here for Houston. Uh, in their history, they won MLS Cup in their first two years, 2006 and 2007, uh, and they won the U.S. Open Cup in 2018. But they weren't really a true expansion team, Matt. So originally, the team was in San Jose. The original San Jose team relocated in 2006 to Houston. Okay, stay with me here, everyone. Stay with me, okay? This gets a little complicated. The San Jose team relocated in 2006 to Houston as the Houston Dynamo 
after efforts to secure a soccer-specific stadium in San Jose fell through. That's why it was significant earlier that San Jose was able to privately fund that soccer-specific stadium. It was a big deal for them. Uh, the uh, Anschutz Entertainment Group, which owned uh, San Jose up until 2005 and then moved uh, to Houston, they took the entire team, staff, players, everything, with them to form the Houston Dynamo. However, it's not like when we move teams and that, that they just carry that history over. They actually, the league considered Houston Dynamo an expansion team so that when the San Jose Earthquakes then returned in 2008 after a two-year hiatus under a different ownership group, they could keep the history from 98 to 2006 and then 2008 onwards. And then Houston Dynamo's history just starts 2006 onwards. Like so, yeah. If you look in the history did, books, did, did you just follow like, that? Yeah. So you're you're saying that San Jose existed from the beginning in '96 or '98. Yeah. Or, or, or yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. In '96, all the way until 2006, and then they just pressed pause, kind of did yep. you know, kind of like put on different masks and said, "Oh, hey, I'm Houston Dynamo," yeah. and kind of started that, and then just hopped back off of that and were well, because no, the Houston Dynamo kept playing. Oh, so okay, they okay, so they okay, literally okay. took the San Jose ownership group, mm-hmm. and the ownership group took the staff and the players, and they relocated the team. But and that team started playing in 2006 and is still playing today as the Houston Dynamo. But then they just allowed the San Jose Earthquakes to reform under the same brand in 2008. Okay. And even though it was no longer the same ownership group and not the same players or the same staff, they were technically still considered the same team. So it's just they, they just so, weird. so basically San Jose has this like two year gap in their history and yeah. Houston Dynamo's history starts from 2006 and technically onwards. No like connection with that history in terms of ownership, in terms of players or like right cur- like currently you know yeah. it's like their front okay wow that so just yeah I mean ultra 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 weird thing so yeah hopefully you guys followed that um that it's definitely definitely a very very uh weird thing houston dynamo are kind of most relevant obviously they came in uh, and won mls cup their first two years in 2006 2007 not as big of an accomplishment as an expansion team when you consider that they weren't really an expansion team they just took the very successful san jose team into houston um DeMarcus Beasley is their most notable former player, former U.S. men's national team player. Um, he recently retired. He played with, for them for a long time. I felt like he was like 45 years old when he finally retired. Yeah. Uh, but he's still playing at a high level, so credit to him. So, yeah, the, the origin story with Houston Dynamo is really weird. Uh, I won't give you guys a headache anymore. Let's uh, move on over to FC Dallas. Okay, so FC Dallas is the other team in Texas. They operate out of the Dallas suburb of Frisco at Toyota Stadium. Uh, they've played at Toyota Stadium since 2005. It's a soccer-specific stadium, 20,000 people. Like a lot of these soccer-specific mm-hmm. stadiums, a lot of the MLS stadiums are about that size, soccer-specific. They were one of the original 10 members. They were actually the uh, Dallas Burn originally. Ooh. They adopted their current name of FC Dallas in 2004, right before their move to their soccer-specific stadium. So Thank God. Uh, oh yeah, that was... Uh, Oh, that was a pretty brutal one. Um, they are owned by the Hunts. So we've mentioned the Hunt family before. Uh, they were the previous owners of the Columbus Crew before Anthony Precourt brought them. Um, so they had owned a couple, and FC Dallas was the team they kept when they divested their okay. other teams. So they're owned by the Hunts, who also own the Kansas City Chiefs and the Chicago Bulls for some reason. I feel like So they've got a Texas team, they've got Kansas City, and then they've got Chicago. So just kind of a weird conglomerate yeah, of weird. teams to own, but that that's what it is. Uh, they've won one supporter shield in 2016. Uh, they've never won MLS Cup in their existence. They were an MLS Cup finalist once in 2010, uh, and they've won two U.S. Open Cups, 1997 and 2016. But uh, what makes them really famous uh, is their commitment to their academy. Yeah, exactly. And so they're kind of the ideal club for what the MLS is gravitating towards in terms of producing young homegrown more specifically talent yeah uh, through their local i mean texas is huge so and they have a they have an incredible um i mean football um like network but but also soccer network um and so fc dallas is is known for their their academy and so they can produce their own players and sell them on and make their profit that way rather than buying these already established players and then selling them hopefully for a greater fee atlanta united's been doing that to some varying degree of success yeah there's two ways to be a selling club right like there's 
the way of producing your own players, which mm-hmm. FC Dallas is buying into. And then there's the way of buying a player that's got a lot of potential mm-hmm. and is young, like Atlanta United are doing, and then selling them on for a bigger fee. But the goal is always buy or develop cheap, sell big, which exactly. is what MLS is trying to do, which is what LA Galaxy are struggling to keep up with, like mm-hmm. we mentioned earlier. And Dallas are really leading that wave on the player development yeah. standpoint. And, and, and to an even crazier extent, their most notable players that they've sold didn't even play for their first team. Yeah. So they had um, players like Weston McKinney, who made his name at Schalke and now is starting games as, as we're recording this yeah. for Juventus, the best team in all of Italy, his playing alongside with Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah, it, it looks photoshopped. Um, <laughs> and Chris Richards didn't even play for their uh, FC Dallas uh, first team, but now is playing for Bayern Munich. I think he assisted Lewandowski yeah, last he just, weekend. Yeah, he just um, he just got his first start for Bayern Munich at right back and assisted Lewandowski. Exactly. Again, fo- looks photoshopped. It yeah. Is. So, I mean, that's a cool story for like, that would be a cool photo for MLS. You have yeah. uh, Chris Richards playing right back and Alfonso Davies playing left back, providing the assist on the flanks for the German champions. Yeah. Other players that they're um, selling is uh, Reggie Cannon. Has his move been official? Yeah, no, okay. he's, he's officially, he, he got sold to Boa Vista, which is like a... Um, mid to top tier uh portuguese team mm-hmm. uh he's a national he's got national team appearances as a right back uh played for uh the first team at fc dallas for a while um and they've also got paxton Palmicall, who um plays for their first team right now he, he's a star number eight for them he's, he's out with a long-term achilles injury right now otherwise he probably would have been sold by this point okay but um he's definitely the next one to get a big big european move but yeah i mean those are just four players right there just to kind of showcase their academy. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, they signed a 21-year-old keeper, Carlos Aviles, who's been with the club since 12 years old. So he really just embodies like what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> with that signing, they've signed a league-leading 29 homegrown players. Yeah, over and, the course so, and, of their and, existence. and quick like explanation. Can you you know brief oh, over yeah. like what a homegrown player is? Because someone from the NFL or uh, NBA background. That that just doesn't make sense. Yeah. They get players from college that don't have any yeah. association with them. Yeah, no, no, that's a good point. So the way that soccer development around the world works is, whereas in American sports models with the NBA or the NFL, you often develop players through their high school and through their college, and then they get drafted by a team. But in world soccer and increasingly in MLS, you have these academies, which are basically uh, these high-level AAU teams or club teams or that kind of thing. Uh, And they in-house develop their own players that are from around their area uh, and they recruit them into their academy. They can they often live there full time, and it's uh, a free thing for most MLS academies. While also still getting their education. While so also still getting their education. It would be as if um, I don't know if the Dallas Cowboys had a elementary school, a middle school, a high yeah. school, and a college for kids to get their education, but also have a centralized group of players to play those sports it's kind of like it's if you're a football or basketball fan think like img academy in florida it's It's the same kind of like that yeah Yeah. just to give you guys a comparison um so yeah fc dallas's academy is kind of the premier academy in mls so they take these kids from 12 years old and develop them as players and the goal is to sign them to the first team um, and either have them contribute wildly to their success or sell them for money Exactly. Um, because they are investing money in them to house them and to educate them and to pay for their coaches and their jerseys and stuff. So eventually you want to return on that investment. It all comes back to money in the end, guys. It all comes back to money in the end. All right, let's go over to Sporting Kansas City, okay? Uh, they are obviously based out of Kansas City, Missouri at Children's Mercy Park, uh, which is a 18,000 capacity soccer-specific soccer stadium. They were an original MLS team. Uh, they won two MLS Cups, one Supporters' Shield, four U.S. Open Cups. Um, they were originally known as the Kansas City Wiz. That only lasted for a year, and it then sounds they like s- a brand of like Cheetos or like some <laughs> some some type of crappy little snack like that. So bad, and then uh, unsurprisingly, that name didn't last past the inaugural season. They went to the Kansas City Wizards, which isn't much better. Um, cool but, jerseys, though. Yeah, their rebrand uh, history is uh, is pretty interesting, and then they rebranded. They're now sporting Kansas City. They rebranded uh, pretty recently in 2010, uh, about a decade ago. But why did they rebrand? Here's a pretty interesting quote from their own website okay so this is sporting kc's website about their brand history right before they rebranded 
Quote, the historic impression of the wizards was one of screaming 12-year-olds with plastic noisemakers in an empty, chasmal arrowhead stadium. The status quo was playing second fiddle in an ill-equipped minor league baseball stadium. And throughout the, th- the then 15-year history of the club, a series of silly monikers and an even sillier rainbow motif and color palette limited the ability to sell merchandise or even be taken seriously. The impression needed to change. The brand needed to grow up. End quote. I feel bad for whatever <laughs> marketer like brought that the Kansas City Wizards. They probably worked hard on that, but they apparently needed to grow Ooh, up. Yeah, I mean that that's not that's not a third party. That is Kansas City's own website. Uh, that's how they describe their, their brand like history. That, but obviously, they became Sporting Kansas City in 2010, and then moved into their new soccer-specific stadium. Yeah. Obviously, a trend we are starting to see with these MLS teams. They get this new move to a stadium and they couple it with a rebrand to boost their brand relevance and that kind of stuff. And they made a lot of other changes as well. And it's really one of the more remarkable turnarounds. They went from having 400 season ticket holders at one point to one of like Soccer City USA. Like they are a major soccer hub of the United States. They're consistently selling out that place. Uh, Just a pretty shocking turnaround and and credit to the ownership and, and management there for for killing that rebrand and and killing that turnaround of that club. Okay, let's talk about Minnesota United. Um, they uh, hysterically <laughs> have uh, what some people are calling a new rival with Minnesota United called the nicest rivalry in sports, which just plays on the whole Midwest stuff. And I think we, me and Matt think that's really hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like just a nick on like the North... Um northern states of the u.s having that you know that very nice welcoming warm yeah uh there's not like a mean bone in their body um or whatever it's just playing on that and just taking a make out of it It, it's it's absolutely ridiculous every (laughs) rivalry has to have some animosity like associated with it and it's them making fun of themselves which is my favorite form of comedy (laughs) yeah so that that's pretty funny so let's talk about minnesota united really quickly so you've got Minnesota United. They were a 2017 expansion team um, into MLS. Uh, they have uh, a brand new stadium, Allianz Field, which holds 19,500 people. It's a beautiful stadium. Looks incredible. Achievements-wise, uh, they were pretty poor in their first two seasons. Set some records for goals conceded. They were really, really bad. Uh, they made some significant signings for the 2019 season. Qualified for the MLS playoffs last season, so they're definitely on the way up. They're definitely now considered uh, a more top-tier MLS team. So uh, good for them. Uh, the cool story with Minnesota United uh, is the fact that they sing Wonderwall by Oasis. The 1995 it might not be a wonderful thing for many many people, but <laughs> it is very cool story. Yeah. So the 1995. Uh, British rock ballad by Oasis. They sing this after after wins, okay? So here's the story behind why they sing this British rock ballad song from 1995. So the year's 2011, and they're the Minnesota Stars, which is the uh, NESL version of uh, the Minnesota United organization. So they're struggling to stay afloat in the NESL, uh, which was then the second division of U.S. soccer in 2011. Uh, they had this uh, British assistant coach named Carl Craig, he actually used to tour with a punk rock band in England. Okay, so on road trips, Carl would just whip out his guitar and the whole squad would be belting out songs a cappella in the back of the bus. He just galvanized all the energy team. And one of his favorites was Wonderwall. He would always whip out Wonderwall. So Minnesota kind of had a pretty dismal season. They were going to the final game of the season away at the Carolina Railhawks, uh, the previous iteration of North Carolina FC mm-hmm. in Raleigh. The Railhawks were in first place. Uh, and a documentary filmmaker was traveling with the team expecting to just kind of capture some footage about the heartbreak of the end of a season. And against all odds, they won the game and qualified and snuck into the last playoff spot for NASL. Uh, and in the locker room, this filmmaker gets this uh, video of all these players led by assistant coach Carl Craig just belting out Wonderwall in the locker room. They've got those big orange Gatorade jugs in the middle just banging on them (laughs) for the beat. And they're just absolutely like belting this Wonderwall song out. And he posted it to YouTube and their fans loved it. And it just became, Wonderwall became the theme song for that playoff run. And 
improbably, they won an NASL championship. They made a run through the entire playoff bracket after sneaking into playoffs on the final day. They won the NASL championship, and the fans just loved it, right? Like, Carl, Carl Craig ended up becoming the head coach for a while. Um, he, unfortunately, was fired in 2016, but the Wonderwall song lives on for the supporters and there's your story so when you see minnesota win a game and you see the entire supporter section and the players on the field just belting out this random british song this this was the story behind it and this is why and yeah. those are the cool stories i think that just make soccer culture supporters culture yeah. really cool and, and and what a wonder wall way to uh, oh uh, no 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 we can't end yeah, like that yeah no that, that, that was a rough attempt but what a very <laughs> wonderful way to to end up um the series kind of giving an overview on yeah. not only just a basic standing and history of each of the teams but just a very cool story that hopefully y'all listeners can can sift through and and yeah. look at something that you identify with and and if you grew up in the 1990s and really loved yourself some grunge music and listened to green day and oasis and uh weezer or whatever and you're like oh man i really like that and so you can come a minnesota united fan or just it, there's so many different teams is yeah. what is what the MLS is is all about. They're so different, have so many different stories and identities, and there. I think there isn't a, a person that can't relate with at least one of the teams. Yeah. So hopefully, some story we told resonates with you guys today. Uh, we had a blast doing this whole series. Um, so stick around uh, for episode three coming up next week. We're excited to continue our five-episode MLS 101 series. So until then, uh, I am Will Martin. And I'm Matt McCutcheon. And this is What the FC. What the FC.